The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. I want to thank you so much for joining us today. If you've been kind of tracking with us, we are walking verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke, and we did a little three-week mini-series that we finished last Sunday. We, We were talking about a boldness, a boldness in our response to sin and our faith, and then last week in our duty, and we we kind of packaged that all together because Jesus was teaching his disciples what he thought they needed to know to move forward because Jesus knows something he's been trying to let them be aware of, that his time on this earth is short. He has a destination and an appointment with the cross that is going to cover over all of our sins. He knows that. He's trying to get them to know that. And so our passage today is in Luke 17, 11 through 19. It's really a beautiful passage showing the mercy of Jesus, but it teaches us the importance of gratitude. And I don't know that that's a characteristic we think of far too often, but we do need to be grateful. We need to be people of gratitude, specifically as it pertains to what God is doing in our life. So we're going to see a story of Jesus healing 10 men today and seeing how one came back with great gratitude. They all received the healing, but one came back with great gratitude. We won't get to that, though, uh, for a few minutes because there's so much in this passage, both socially and culturally, that I want to unpack in order to understand why things happened the way they happened. So so if that makes sense, uh, the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is moving now. In this passage, he's moving from Perea towards Jerusalem, but he's going to take this huge loop around because he knows his time is coming in roughly a month. He'll be in Jerusalem. It will be his time to lay down his life for your sins. But it's not time now, and the problem is he just raised Lazarus from the dead. So now the word's out all throughout the region that this is a guy that already is known as a great teacher, but now he's raising people from the dead. His fame is growing, but the Pharisees, the ones who will ultimately arrest him, try him, convict him, and crucify him, the Pharisees put out an all-points bulletin. We want this man. If you have any information as to where he's at, let us know so that we can come help you because he is dangerous, not to you or me or the community, but to them, to what they love and what they want to keep a hold firm of. He is a danger to them and they want him, they want him gone or dead and we'll see that in a month, but it's not Jesus' time. So he takes a big loop heading back towards Galilee where he spent the first about year and a half of his ministry. He's heading there because he's got some more teaching to do. His time is short, and he needs his disciples to be ready and anyone else who wants to listen. This milestone moment in Jesus' ministry is recorded by all three synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every one of them have a moment where they say, and Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem. Luke 17, verse 11, is his marker of this time. Chronologically, this is where Jesus says, I am now resolutely determined to head to the cross. Luke 17, verse 11, now on his way to Jerusalem. That's all it says. But this is a huge point that both 
Matthew and Mark make. Now I'm heading to Jerusalem. Here's the undercurrent of that. I'm heading to the end. I can see the finish line. My time here is almost done. Continuing, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. Now, he traveled on the border. He took the shortest route to Galilee that he could without going through Samaria. Why is that important? Once again, socially and culturally, Jews did not travel through the dirt of Samaria. They didn't do that. We saw that early in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 4 when he was going through Samaria because it said that's the path he had to take. Why? He had a divine appointment scheduled with a woman at a well. In John chapter 4, we read her words. We see that she's going, I can't believe you're asking me for this. I can't believe you're even here. You're not supposed to walk through my town. Luke chapter 17, verses 12 through 14. It says, as he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance. I'll explain why later, but I I want you to picture this. He's entering a village, 10 men in a group stood at a distance and met Jesus. They all had leprosy and they called out in a loud voice because they were far apart. Jesus, master, have pity on us. Please look at our current circumstance And if you are who people say you are, if you're the one who can raise the dead, you can help us. But we just want you to have pity on us because our life is miserable. Verse 14, when he saw them, when he saw their misery and their hurt, when he saw them, he said, go now, go show yourself to the priests. And as they went, as they followed his direction, as they went, they were cleansed. Now, we're going to deduce from the next few verses that of these 10 men, there was one Samaritan and there were nine Jewish men who all had leprosy, okay? Now, Jews and Samaritans do not associate with one another. As I referenced the woman at the well just a moment ago, John chapter 4, verse 9, this is the conversation she had with Jesus. And I just want you to see what Scripture writes in a parenthetical at the end, but we'll read all of verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So this band of brothers were brought together by their ailment, by their leprosy, by the fact that no one else could associate with them. So you have a Samaritan and you have nine Jews all hanging out. Their joint misery is what brings them together. They cry out, take pity on us. When we think of leprosy today, just a little medical lesson, it's not a big deal. We call it Hansen's disease, okay, also known as leprosy. It's an infection caused by a slow-growing bacteria called Mycobacterium leprae. That's where we get leprosy, okay? It's a bacterial infection with early diagnosis and treatment. This disease is completely curable. People with disease have completely normal lives. They leave. They have no issues because there's treatment, okay? So we don't hear about this anymore. You go to the doctor and you hear, I have leprosy. If you've read the Bible, you're like, oh, what's going on? He's like, no, it's fine. Just take, take this medicine. You will be good. But while these 10 gentlemen in the first century 
probably have Hansen's disease or some other severe skin infection. In the first century, it's incurable. It's incredibly contagious. And people know that. But there's a bigger problem. There's a stigma around this. Because in the first century, it was known by all that if you had leprosy, you were cursed by God. Leprosy was a punishment for sin. Okay? A divine curse because it was chronic and incurable. If you had it, your family disowned you. Why? Because they didn't want to get it because they thought God gave it to you. It was known in the first century as the finger of God, meaning that God literally marked you as cursed, as despicable, as deplorable. You were out and everyone could see it. Everyone could see it on your face. That's where it normally lands. You could see it. And you had clearly done something horrible to deserve this curse. And yet 2,000 years later, we know it's a bacterial infection. And that's all it was. It wasn't the curse of God, but for the people in the first century, since there was no cure, the only thing that could possibly intervene would be God himself. So if God chose to cure you, that clearly meant he was lifting the curse from you. Lepers were forced into communities because they were cast out of their homes and their communities. So you had leper colonies that formed because they could be with one another, but they couldn't be around anyone else. In fact, a leper was required by law, not biblical law, but by law to shout out if a clean person came too close to shout out, unclean! Unclean, like you're, you're getting too close to me. You're going to catch what I've got. You're going to catch my curse. They were required by law to shout that out. Can you imagine the embarrassment, the isolation, the depression on top of the sickness that came to these 10 men who had banded together, who had to stay at a great distance from Jesus and shout out, Master have pity on us. Please. We've lost our families. We've lost our community. We can't come within 20 feet of anyone without having to warn them and declare it. I'm unclean. I'm cursed. Master, Jesus, have pity on us. Jesus tells the men, he says, go show yourself to the priest. Now, you might read that and be like, what? That doesn't, he didn't heal them. Go show yourself to the priest. What does that mean? This isn't Jesus punting the problem. It's not him going, I don't want anything to do with you either. Jesus is actually following the biblical law. There is an entire chapter in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 14, that is devoted, an entire chapter devoted to the process of declaring someone with leprosy clean. It was so rare and it required so many steps because then you got to go back home, you got to go back into your community, but it was so rare that they had this entire chapter. And I'm going to read just a little bit of it so that you understand what Jesus is doing here. 
Jesus is following the prescribed law, and he's telling these men, go show yourself to the priest, because he knew that on the way, they were going to be healed. Leviticus 14, 1 through 11. I know it's a lot of verses, but let's, let's just knock this out. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing. They're clean now, but they have to be ceremonially clean. When they are brought to the priest, the priest is to go outside the camp. That means outside of the town perimeter. Can't be part of the community. Go outside the camp and is going to examine them. If they have been healed, because once again, it had to be divine for them to get rid of leprosy. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, because there were multiple, it's not just leprosy, but if they've been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn, hyssop, which is kind of a root, be brought for the person to be cleansed. I'm reading this, and it sounds like a Monty Python movie, right? Bring me two birds and some scarlet yarn and, and, uh, and some wood and uh, some hyssop. And, and it, it sounds crazy, but they had to bring all of these materials. Verse 5, then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water, has to be in a clay pot. He is then to take the live bird and dip it, okay, together with the cedar wood. So I guess you kind of put a bird cedar wood medley together and dip it with the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times the priest is to sprinkle the one who has been already healed, who's been cleansed of the defiling disease, and then pronounce them clean. So seven times, seven times, the priest has to take all those things, dip it into water blood from the dead bird, and sprinkle it on the person who's already been healed. After that, he is to release the live bird into the open fields. I'm not making this up. This is in the Bible. The live bird then flies away, I guess, as a symbol of their cleansing and their renewal. The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. However, after this, they may come into the camp, but they may not. They have to stay outside of their tent for seven more days. So they can't go home. They can just come into the town. On the seventh day, they must shave off all their hair, any hair that's grown back, but they must also shave their heads, their beard, their eyebrows, and the rest of their hair. You have to shave your entire body. Seven days after you've already been dipped in bird blood, you have to shave your entire body. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water, and then they will be clean. On the eighth day, they must bring another sacrifice, two male lambs and one ewe lamb, a year old, each without defect, along with a three-tenth of an ephah of finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. So you have to bring all this. I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but the rest of the chapter is describing what the person who can't afford all those things has to do. So there was, a, there was like a, a way that a poor person could do this without having to spend all that money. The priest who pronounces them clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and their offering before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meetings. And then somehow on the eighth day, after all these sacrifices and all this craziness, they are allowed to go back in their own home. So when Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, 
I think there was hope in their mind. And as they were walking towards the priest in their hometown, they realized something happened. Uh, I'm healed. Now I've got an eight-day rigmarole to go through. But this is amazing. I don't care. I don't even care about that. I get to go home. I get to hug my kids again. I, I, get, I get to be with my people again. They don't care. Luke chapter 17, verses 15 through 19. One of them, when he saw that he was healed. So he walked off with the group. They notice at some point on their journey, oh, this, this, we're, we're good. This is incredible. One of them came back praising God in a loud voice. This man threw himself at Jesus' feet. Notice the posture, but also notice the proximity. Initially, they had to shout from afar because they were unclean, but now he's been healed. So he throws himself at Jesus' feet and he thanks him. And he was a Samaritan. The reason he broke off from the other nine is because he can't go to that priest. He's half Jewish, but he's half Gentile. He's a Samaritan. He can't go to that priest. So he throws himself at Jesus' feet, and Jesus asked him, were not all ten cleansed? I love this. It's not that Jesus was wondering if his healing worked. He's going, where are the other nine coming back to thank me? We're not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except you, the foreigner? And then he said to the man, get up, rise, go. Your faith, your faith has made you well. So I've alluded to this, but a few things have happened behind the scenes the odd man out, once they're all cleansed, can't hang out with the Jews anymore because now he's just a Samaritan. The systemic racism of the first century shows its ugly head. So the Samaritan peels off and he goes, I don't have a priest to go show myself to, so I'll go to the highest of all priests. I'll come back to Jesus. And now I can approach him because I'm clean and I'm going to throw myself down at his feet. I'm going to thank him for what he's done. Now, before we rip the other nine, realize, realize this. They did exactly what they were told to do. They went to their priest. They went to walk through that eight-day process so that they could go back home. The, the other nine are not bad in this story. They're not. But, but, what is clear is that while nine chose to ritually cleanse themselves, one man, the foreigner, he chose relationship. He chose proximity. He chose Jesus. And I feel like the main message from this passage is that while ritual has its place and while Jesus called them to go do the ritual, relationship will always trump that. The desire to be in relationship with Jesus will always trump that. The posture 
of the man coming back was not like, look at me. He threw himself at Jesus' feet. You can feel the gratitude and the emotion in this gesture. And Jesus received it because he's worthy of it. But then he said, get up, my child. While I'm worthy of this praise, it was your faith that healed you. It was your faith that enabled me to move. And I, I, I want to be thanked. I want the gratitude you bring, and I appreciate it. But now just go and remain faithful. Go and live your clean, cleansed life and remain faithful. If we think of leprosy, kind of like the stains of sin, then our story and this man's story can line up very well. Marred separated from God, cleansed by Jesus to return and lay down at his feet. And he says, get up. Your faith is what saved you. You're whole. Now go remain faithful. I wonder how often, how often do we cry out to Jesus? We cry out for help. And then he does. He intercedes. Our faith enables him to move in that situation, yet we fail to then fall on our faces before him with gratitude and praise. I wonder how often that happens because we're so desperate in the moment of strife and trial, but then when that's over, we're like, okay, we're good now. Let's keep going about our rituals. You know, we'll, we'll go back to church, we'll do that. How often do we fail to give him the praise and the gratitude that he deserves? How often do we do that? I just wonder, what has God done for you lately that you need to thank him for? I'm not trying to be a psychologist because I'm not one, but I believe that gratitude is our best attitude. Because when we have gratitude, it pulls us out of our own funk. Those who are, I'm not saying depression is a fun, but those who are depressed, those who are sad, those who are just wondering, what is this life about? When is the last time you were thankful for something? When's the last time you were grateful for what God is doing? Not just focused on what's not happening right. Do you know how sad those 10 guys were? We have no idea how long they were afflicted with leprosy, but their lives were wrecked. They were in the deepest, darkest place possible. And Jesus completely restored them. And if that's a metaphor for our life, when Jesus does move, when the Lord intercedes, what is our attitude? No matter how bad your life is today, I believe there's still something you can thank God for. I really do. I believe there's something you can thank him for. I encourage you to try this. Every time you want to start to complain, maybe just first think, well, I don't have leprosy. Yeah, I mean, at, least, at least I don't have that. And then give God praise for something. It can change your whole outlook. It can change your current crummy situation just by having an attitude of gratitude. And finally, I, I, want, to be, I want to be the person that comes back and falls at the feet of the Lord every time his grace is bestowed upon me. 
every time I realize the forgiveness that I receive that I do not deserve, every time my prayers are answered, and I see that a sovereign God who created and sustains this entire universe listens to me? It's crazy. And it should evoke a gratitude, one, one that maybe is strong enough to overcome the frustration and the hurt and the sorrow and the disappointment of this fallen world. I think today needs to be a day where instead of complaining, we ask the Lord to show us how to have hearts of gratitude. Father, do just that right now for those who are listening today. May we all see the love, the mercy, and the power that you've poured out upon us. And may we thank you. May we, with grateful hearts, return praise to you for who you are and what you've done. We need you, Jesus. We love you, Jesus. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.